Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Get the Hillman Morning Show on demand. Podcasts and more are always online and on your schedule at WAAF.com. So uh, as soon as I started talking on this show about the HBO series Chernobyl, um, many of you were texting in and suggesting that I had to read Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. It's written by Andrew Higginbottom, and he's going to join us in, in a second here. And um, I, I will say this. I'm uh, really excited because I want to uh, confirm a lot of what I saw uh, right. during the series. Right. Yeah. Um, she was asking me the other day, he's like, should we get this guy on? And I was like, yes, because I want him to tell me exactly what was accurate and what was not accurate yeah. in the in the Because the, the story is yes. so amazing. Oh, but it's, 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 it's yeah. absolutely amazing. And Andrew is joining us right now. Hey, Andrew. Adam, it's Adam. Oh, yeah. what did I say? It's Andrew, Adam. I'm sorry. I, 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 my sincere apologies. Adam, <laughs> uh, Adam, thank you for coming on. Um, the... Uh, did you? I assume you watched. I did. I did watch it. Yeah. Um, and were you as? Um, maybe you're not. You were not as uh, amazed as we were uh, because of all the research you did for the book. But um, uh, to me, it was just extraordinary television. Yeah, it's kind of. I mean, what I found extraordinary was the the, the kind of the way that they'd recreated, you know, the scenes and the, like the production design, the cars, people's clothes. All of that stuff seemed just amazingly convincing. Um, how accurate, when, you know, when you when you, like, you would talk about the kind of the trial scene uh, in the in, in in the finale, and this will be a spoiler here, obviously, but <laughs> um, you know, how accurate is it if you look at that guy, uh, you know, the guy who essentially was uh, in charge of the test, the safety test that evening? Uh, how accurate is it? to place a good part of the blame on him. Well, I think what you've got to bear in mind about this show is that it's really gripping and it's great TV, but it's not a documentary. Um, you know, similarly, like Saving Private Ryan is an incredibly gripping, uh, you know, troubling movie to watch, but it's not a documentary about D-Day. So this is like a, this is a, a dramatization of some things that happened, and a lot of it is, is kind of made up. Um, and the depiction of the guy that you were talking about, Anatoly Dyatlov, is like sort of broadly accurate, um, you know, based on, I think, the material that they use to research the show. But I, I talked to a lot of people that work with him. Um, and, you know, some people, their opinion of him was that he was this sort of Martinet, uh, Captain Bly figure. But he was obviously, because nobody's that, you know, black and white, nobody's that simplistic uh, in real life, and he was much more complex than that. Um, and he was actually a really high, highly qualified nuclear specialist. They kind of give you the impression in the show that he doesn't really know what he's doing. He's just going to sort of bulldoze his way through any opposition from his from his underlings. But he, he wasn't really like that. Um, 
And to the extent that he was like solely to blame for what happened, I, you know, I don't think that's true at all. I mean, the, the system, I mean, as I suggest in the show, it's, it's really the system that ultimately paved the path towards the disaster. And, and if it wasn't the Atloff, it could have been somebody else in his position. Staying with the Atloff for a minute. So you're telling me he didn't walk in there and throw the manual at the guy in the control <laughs> room when he said he didn't know what to do? Because I found that to be just um, incredible in the truest sense of the word, that the guy says, I don't know what I'm doing, and just throwing the manual, we're dealing with a nuclear power plant here. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's, that's totally fictitious. Oh. Yeah. No, no, it's, all of it was that stuff, the screaming, the throwing things around. I mean, you know, it, I mean, there, I've, because I've read the trial, the actual trial transcripts of the actual trial, where all of the people that worked in that control room and were there that night, you know, were cross-examined in detail. And it was just not that, you know... The atmosphere was tense, um, but you know I, I spoke to people who were there, and there was no <laughs> there was no mention of any throwing around of manuals. I mean, the, the kind of you know the Captain Queeg behavior is is not really that's not really true to life. The um, the character uh, Legasov uh, Legasov yeah. is that's based on uh, on a, on a real person. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I'm curious uh, afterwards what ended up being his fate because it, you know, in the series, it, it seems like essentially his career as a nuclear scientist is going to be ruined by the Russian government. I mean, is that what ended up being his fate? Well, he. I mean, again, the thing is that you know he's kind of depicted as this sort of valiant martyr who you know sacrifices his career by speaking truth to power. Uh, you know, by delivering this, this speech at the trial. But, the, but, you know, the reality is that he wasn't at the trial. There was no such speech. Really? Uh, no, I mean, none of the, all of the, I mean, everything that you see taking place in that courtroom in the, la the last episode of the show, like that sprung entirely from the imagination of, of, of Craig oh. Mazin, the, the writer. I mean, that's yeah. just a dramatization. You're, you're I mean, ruining my shoe right oh, wait. now. <laughs> well, let me, let's just get right to this. Were those miners really naked then? <laughs> what do you think? I, I want it to be true. <laughs> of, of course you do. I'd love it to be true. I mean, you know, and, and to be perfectly honest, I mean, I, I talked to people who, who were working in those tunnels during that time with the miners, and, um, and none of them None of the, I didn't ask them whether all the miners there were working naked except for their shoes and hats. But, but equally, none of the people I spoke to mentioned it. And, yeah. and they mentioned lots of other crazy things that happened. And I would have thought, I mean, I don't know what you think, but I would have thought that had 400 burly men have spent day and night working naked except for shoes and hats in a high radiation zone, somebody who else who was there who I spoke to might have mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> what about the this, the story of the three divers who who chose to to go in? I mean that that is that's that's valid, correct? Look, I don't want to <laughs> I, I don't want to come in here and spoil all of this for you. No, that that's what you're doing. But yes, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, three guys did go in just like that, and they did they they did have to open those taps. But there was not like a sort of I'm Spartacus style scene where, you know, three men stand up from a from a room full of other possible volunteers. That didn't it, it wasn't like that. It didn't happen. No, because yeah. they were 
because they were three guys who worked at the plant and they were on the shift. It was their, their time to work yeah. at the time when that operation began. So the, the one guy who was leading the operation, who, who actually led them into the, the tunnels in the basement, you know, he just got a phone call and they said, so, we, we, you know, you've got to, we want you to go and open, you know, tap TG4 uh, down at, at level one in the in the basement, um, you know, get a team together and go and do it. There was no like, there was no, you're going to pay us a bonus for this. It's deadly. It's, yeah, but what they, you know, but the fact is that the truth is actually more terrifying because what that that scene and that depiction in in the show misses out is that before those guys could go into the tunnel, the tunnel was actually flooded. Several, you know, it, it was flooded to shoulder height with highly radioactive water. Mm. They accurately depict the fact that they were wading through ankle-deep water. But a load of guys had to go in and pump those tunnels out of the radioactive water before oh. they could get in there. And that took three days. Oh. Wow. Um, what about a texter would like to know about the Bridge of Death and, and uh, if it is indeed accurate that those people who went out to watch that night... Uh, all of them ended up passing away. No, that's not true either, okay. I'm afraid. Wow. <laughs> Boy, uh, it's uh, pretty solemn in the studio right now. <laughs> really, really? we got a couple of TV guys here. <laughs> look, look, I'm sorry, you know, it's, it's it, like I say, it's, you know, think of, of, of Saving Private Ryan. It's a great movie. Just, just don't, just don't try and pick it apart. It's not. This isn't a documentary. It's, yeah, a, it's right. a drama series. No, I mean, no. The bridge of. I mean, the bridge of death has been written about in in several kind of ostensible nonfiction uh, recountings of the disaster. You know, that were written in the early nineties, and it, they continue to be that continues to be repeated today. But you know, I talked to a lot of people who lived in Pripyat. By and large, the citizens of Pripyat were asleep when this was happening. Yeah, um, and. You know, if you think about it in, in terms of what would happen in real life, if you knew that you lived near a nuclear plant and there was a big fire and a big bang at night, would you go out with your kids in a stroller <laughs> and just spend yeah. like four, I know, four or five hours standing there watching it burn? Is that what you would do? But, this is basically this is my life in a nutshell because I watch everything on TV and I think it's real. Right. And uh, even the fiction stuff. And Adam is now informing me that unfortunately I wasted a lot of time. Well, I, but but it was great television. I, it, I was, wanna... it was great television. Yeah. yeah. But the Bridge of Death. I'm afraid. I mean, I did. You know, I spoke to one guy who's now uh, in his forties, I guess. But he was, um, you know, he was eight or nine at the time of the accident, and. In the morning, after all the kids had been sent home from school, uh, he got on his bike and he rode over to the Bridge of Death mm -hmm. um, and, and watched what was going on from a distance because he was curious. But, you know, I was having a conversation with this guy in 2016, and he seemed pretty healthy to me. He was certainly not dead. Yeah. All right. I, yeah. I want to ask about something that I hope isn't true, and that is the soldiers shooting the dogs. Well, that is true. I'm not sure oh. the soldiers did it, but yeah. because uh, what I found in my research was the truth was actually worse, which was the Ukrainian authorities, because they were concerned about um, not only uh, the spread of radiation on the fur of these animals, but also of, of rabies. Um, 
they did order an operation that went on for quite a long time. But what they did is they, they approached the, well, it was the Soviet Union they didn't approach. They instructed members of uh, the Ukrainian Society of Hunters and Fishermen to gather their weapons and uh, go into the exclusion zone. And, and they did indeed do that. They, they killed domestic pets, but they also killed, you know, domestic animals. So there were goats and cows and things left behind. Um, and so they did move through the exclusion zone, and that's exactly what they did. On the other hand, um, you know, they, they couldn't, it wasn't possible for them to hunt down and kill all of these animals. And, and a lot of the, the animals that were left behind were actually adopted by troops who were stationed in the zone as part of the cleanup. Um, and they, they fed them and, and kind of gave them new, they gave them new names. They gave them names like Romchen and Gamma and uh, Dosimeter and stuff. Huh. We're talking with the author of Midnight in Chernobyl, Adam Higginbottom, or as I call him, Alan. And, or Andrew. Um, or Andrew. <laughs> or Andrew. Or Andrew. Uh, and we're, we're trying to get to the bottom of some of this uh, stuff about Chernobyl, the HBO miniseries. And, um, you know, at the end, um, they throw a stat up there that, you know, somewhere between 4,000 and 90-some-odd thousand people died as a result of what happened what did, what is your estimation on the actual number well the truth is i think as it as it probably says also at the end of the show is is that we won't really know we can't know because partly because the soviet government deliberately concealed a lot of information about the health effects mm -hmm. um from the very beginning but also because the epidemiology of this is so complicated that it's it's really hard to do anything other than make an estimate and what you've got to bear in mind is that you're talking about a population of around 5 million people living in the worst affected areas of Ukraine, of Belarus, and, and then the Russian Republic. Um, and the, certainly the most, the most solid estimates uh, of the number of extra deaths from cancer, additional deaths on top of the background rate of cancer that would normally occur, uh, are about, is about 5,000. So that's 5,000 people. I mean, that, that's, that obviously is terrible. You don't want one additional person to die. But that's 5,000 people out of a population of 5 million. So you can see that the scope for error in these, in these figures is, is obviously enormous. Are there people who are living now in the exclusion zone, or, or are they not allowed to? Well, they, they haven't technically been allowed to since 1986, but um, there are some people... Um, I think scores or dozens of people now, you know, they either stayed behind by, by evading the authorities to begin with, or they kind of crept back afterwards. And now they're mostly old people who've, who've lived in these sort of small uh, rural villages for, for their entire lives. And, and, you know, in many cases, their ancestors, their grandfathers, their grandparents, um, their great-grandparents have lived there. Um, so they, didn't, they just didn't want to leave. And they, um, they still live there now, and they kind of grow their own vegetables, and, oh, and the authorities kind of tolerate their presence. Wow. I don't know if I'd want to eat anything grown in that area. I mean, no. Veggies are huge. <laughs> but you have to think about it. Yeah. You know, it's not like they have, what do they do, go to the bank, get a, a yeah. mortgage, buy else? a new yeah. house? Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. they have nowhere yeah. to go. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if you have any insight on a curious decision that, or even if it's true at this point, that one of the three... Uh, people who were in charge of the plant. I think it was Nikolai Foman. Is that yeah. okay? 
at the end, they say he did his 10 years, I think it was hard labor. Hard labor. And then he got back into the nuclear energy business. <laughs> it's curious to me why they would allow him near a nuclear power plant after the worst nuclear disaster in history. Yeah, he went back to work at the Kalinin uh, nuclear plant um, outside Moscow. Um, well, you know, the thing is, the ironic thing here is that... that um, a lot of the people who who were involved in the disaster went back to work in the nuclear field afterwards. Um, I mean, apart from anything else, because now, if you think about it, they had this extraordinary experience in 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 working with nuclear energy that that many people, you know, other elsewhere on Earth did not have. You know, they coped with the worst nuclear disaster in history, and now they were super qualified to make sure this didn't happen again. For me, I, I mean, I, I can't, I'm not really sure exactly what happened there. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, because he did have a complete nervous breakdown. I don't think they actually mentioned this in the show. But before the trial began, he attempted to, to commit suicide by slashing his wrists um, with the broken fragments of his spectacles. Um, and they had to delay the trial partly as a result of that. They had to wait until he was well enough to go back on the stand. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the decision to, to let him go back to work in a plant, a nuclear plant, seems a little bit peculiar. But, uh, you know, a lot of the other guys were, were extremely well qualified. Adam, do you believe, as they, as they, uh, as they say in the show, that, the, that Chernobyl was the cause of the fall of the USSR? No, it's, it's I mean, it's, I mean, like, like a lot of the things in, in the show, it's kind of overstated for dramatic effect. It was a very significant turning point, and it had a colossal effect, most importantly, on the mindset of Mikhail Gorbachev, um, because he had announced these plans for Glasnost, for open government and perestroika, which was, was you know, economic reform, um, before the accident. But he hadn't really done anything about it, and he was having to move quite gingerly because he was surrounded by you know, these old apparatchiks who, who didn't really want a reformer in, in power. Um, but after the accident happened, what, what happened when he we'd discovered exactly how corrupt even the nuclear state was, which was supposed to be this, you know, one of the most high-flying technological agencies of the, of the USSR, you know, he realized that he'd inherited this profoundly rotten system. And it persuaded him that, that he had to, to move quickly to change things. And he then plunged into these economic reforms quite recklessly and much too fast. And it was those economic reforms that were bungled that really unraveled the whole of the Soviet Union. So you can see that, that it, it, was a, an, it, was, it led towards the collapse of the Soviet Union, but there were many other things going on at the same time. Did Legasov leave the tapes behind? That the, I mean, did that actually happen? Yes, he did. I mean, it, they weren't dictated as some kind of midnight suicide note, which yeah. is what they're shown in, as in the show. Um, no, he was given a, a because he became very depressed after the accident, partly because his his he did lead this campaign to try and improve industrial and nuclear safety. Um, I mean, he didn't. There was no like deal with the KGB. All all of that stuff is made up. Yeah. Um, Darn it! <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, but uh, but um, you know because Glasnost was going on at this time, so the very idea that somebody would be censured for speaking out and threatened with you know, a bullet in the back of the neck is, is sort of preposterous. Yeah. Because Soviet society and Soviet politics were, were evolving so quickly at this time. Um, 
But you no, know, he he did become he became very depressed, and he was suffering from the effects of the radiation that he'd absorbed. And a friend of his gave him uh, a, like a Japanese dictaphone, uh, and he used this to start recording what he planned at the time as his memoirs. So that's what the 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 tapes were for, um, and you can now read transcripts of them. A seven seven four texter would like to know about the decision to send the helicopter pilots to their death over the reactor, if that indeed did happen. Um. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> sorry, folks. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm sorry Close. about that. The, um, uh. So I think that what they're talking about is, is that you see this helicopter flying into this huge black cloud of smoke, and Legasov is standing on a nearby rooftop saying, no, don't, the radiation, don't stop them, you must stop them. And then it disappears into this black cloud and then falls out of the sky, right? That's what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that didn't happen. <laughs> there was no black smoke uh, right. because, you know, certainly an enormous amount of, of radiation and radioactive vapor was being was ballooning out of the top of this this reactor at that time, but it was it was almost invisible. Um, it was like white smoke. And yes, helicopter pilots did fly over the uh, it, towards the plant and then directly over the reactor to to drop sand and things into the the open mouth of the reactor to try and put out this fire and to try and um, bring down the the possibility of a meltdown. Um, but they, none of them crashed into the reactor. It was not caused by radiation. The crash that's depicted, a crash like that took place, but in October, months and months and months later, long after the fire had been put out, long after this operation to bomb the reactor with sand and boron and lead and things had come to an end. And it was caused not by, you know, the mysterious forces of radiation, but because one of the tail rotors struck the, the cable from a crane nearby. Oh. And so it did indeed fall out of the sky, and the crew and everybody aboard was killed. But it did not happen in, in April uh, 1986. It happened in October. I feel like the last five weeks of my life has been a lie. Oh. <laughs> it was entertaining, though. And by the way, several texters believe that you may work for the KGB. And, and, and hence... <laughs> and, uh, well, I've got, I mean, I, I, I could deny it, but that would just convince them further, really. Right? <laughs> well... Um, I must tell you that since I started talking about the HBO series, countless listeners have recommended your book, which is called Midnight in Chernobyl. And if you want to get the real story, that's where that's where you must go. So. Well, the real story is, is kind of worse and more unbelievable, just in different ways. Really? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, I thank you so much for joining us, and um, I think you're somebody that we, we might want to have on again. So I, I thank you for for coming on with us this morning. No, no, thank you for having me. It's been great. Was there was there just before you go? Was there anything in the HBO series that actually happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there was this reactor and it exploded. And <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, one thing. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. Thank you. All right. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 